listening. Uh, one is uh, just to let you know the the uh, the Vox Project is a uh, uh, gospel-centered group uh, who've come together for um, justice issues and made small videos like that uh, to to equip pastors and churches. Um, if you were wondering what that is, the other thing that I want to say this morning is. Um, you know, as, as someone who's still relatively new to, to this congregation, one of the things I'm thankful for the leadership and, and to Gary for is that, that really as, as we are continuing on together, we're building on a foundation that's already been laid. You know, I've, I've been here long enough to know that um, this is not a church that ignores uh, the sanctity of life issues. We don't ignore these type things, and we won't ignore that in the future. And we... It, it, the foundation has been laid and we're continuing to build what I would call a culture of life in this church. And, and at the end of the sermon today, I'm going to call us to continue to be a people who promote life uh, by stepping into suffering. Um, and, and I see that going on all around us and it just warms my heart. Um, but we won't stop, we won't stop uh, raising that banner. We won't stop uh, clinging that symbol, um, and we won't stop taking opportunities like this morning to, uh, uh, to, to, to do this. Now, my goal this morning, my goal this morning is to do two things. One is uh, I, I want to I walk through our passage, and then after we walk through our passage, what I want to do is I, I want to make the connections about what our passage this morning has to do with the sanctity of, of human life, and I want you to really pay attention to see uh, how I get there, because I think our passage this morning has massive implications for the sanctity of human life. Now, what I'm not doing today, what I'm not doing today is defending, and hear me, hear me here, I'm not defending the truth, the truth that, that a baby in a womb is a baby. I am, I am just making that assumption this morning. So th- this morning is not about when does life begin, I'm making that assumption, uh, so in, in my mind, what we're doing this morning is, is saying, okay, if we believe that, then as a church, as a community, uh, how are we to respond uh, to that? Uh, and, and so I, I think if we continue to have a proper perspective on this issue, if we continue to, to love the gospel and to love God's word, and if we be, continue to set God's word as the truth in our life, I think the only thing, the natural response to that, it's going to mobilize us in one way or the other. And so that, that's where we'll end this morning. So let's start by looking at our text. And as we start this morning in verse 23, Paul, as he's, he's writing, as we continue through the book of Romans, our study in Romans, he says, and not only this, but also we ourselves. And, and, and to understand, okay, well, what is he talking about? Not only this, but we ourselves. So he's, he's referencing to, to something that he just said. And so let's read verses 19 through 22. It says, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together 
until now. And so as Paul comes to verse 23, he's transitioning here and he's saying not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves notice here, we do the same thing that creation does as, as Christians, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoptions as sons, the redemption of our body. And so there's two things that Paul is saying. He's saying that as Christians, like creation, we groan. And, and this groaning uh, puts us into this posture of waiting. And so I want to look at those two things before we go to the next verses. And, and, and as Gary preached last week and two weeks ago as we talked about suffering, as we as Christians, as we look at the world, we groan. We groan because this world is not as it's supposed to be. And everywhere we look around, we see death and we see decay and we see corruption. Nothing is working according to the purpose for which it was created. It's all been broken and it's all been damaged. And it's not as it will one day be. So we groan. And I wanted to ask the question... Uh, and have you think a little bit about, because this is the, the, the crux of the matter this morning, and that is, what is unique about Christian groaning? Because certainly, as, if you turned on the news this morning, and as you listened uh, about government shutdown, and you probably had opinions about the politicians uh, who are serving our best interests, right? That that's a good example of a groaning. You might have groaned if you turned on the news. I would say that there were many non-Christians who probably turned on the news and groaned as well. There are many non-Christians this morning whose family members may have cancer or who may be ill. And there's an inward groaning uh, about the state of this world. The difference, and I think it's two, there's two things. One, it's in the text earlier and then one today. But as Christians, we groan differently because we groan because we know that the cause is sin. We groan as Christians because we know that the cause is because of sin and the curse that was unleashed on the world as Adam fell. So that calamity, hardships, suffering, and decay would not exist without sin. And when I talk about sin, you understand what I'm meaning. I'm not necessarily meaning that um, Lewis sins, so therefore there are negative consequences. Certainly there is that aspect. But when we're talking about sin, we're looking at this more globally, that the fact that the sin and sin happened in the garden and that the fall occurred means that things aren't like they should be. And so as Christians, when we see this, it should remind us. When we see, when we look around our world and when we see aspects of this, it should remind us of of sin in the world. The second thing, the second reason that makes us different in, in our groaning as a Christian is that we don't groan as people who just sit around and kind of bellyache. Our groaning has to do with the fact that we know that there is a day where this won't happen anymore, that God is going to restore all things. And so our groaning comes with a longing. A non-Christian's groaning can only be wishful thinking that something may happen and make things better. Mom's cancer may go away or, uh, you know, whatever the calamity that they're looking at. As Christians, 
we groan knowing that in this world things may never, will never be like they should be. But there is a day, there is a day uh, where things will be made right. You know, there's a parallel passage to this passage in 2 Corinthians, and I want to read it for you in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Listen, and, and listen about, you can hear in here about the Christian's groaning and the Christian's longing. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will not be swallowed up by life. Now he who, is prepared, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that for a while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And you hear in this passage that you hear this groaning and this longing. Now, the, the other thing that I want you to see um, from this verse is why we groan. The other aspect of why we groan. And, and we groan, the passage tells us um, that we, we groan because we have the first fruits of the Spirit. So having the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan. And you may say, well, what in the world does that mean, having the first fruit of the Spirit? And I can kind of answer it, I don't know. <laughs> Meaning, it's, it's pretty debated. Right. I think if you've read your Old Testament, first fruits of the spirit, you know, would uh, would draw up in our minds imagery of uh, the Old Testament sacrifice. But I, I think what is meant also this idea of uh, first fruits of the spirit also carries with it the connotation of a, a guarantee, a guarantee of, of what's to come. And certainly if you if you don't turn back over there, I'll read it again. But certainly, if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, it says, Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. Gave us the Spirit as a, a pledge or a guarantee about what is to come. So I think the key here is that if you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you've been giving the Spirit as, as a taste, as a foretaste of what is to come. If the Spirit of God has been poured out into your life, Romans 5.5. 5. Remember in Romans 5.5, 5, we, we talked about hope and the hope that as the Spirit of God has been poured out in your life, that it means that the love of God has been poured out in your life. If you have the Spirit, you've got, if you're a Christian, if you have the Spirit, you've got the first fruits the guarantee of what is to come. And so that, knowing that, knowing just a taste, a sampling of the joy and the restoration that is to come, creates a groaning and a longing in us. So the first thing that I wanted you to see this morning is that as Christians, that we groan. And the second thing I want, to see, I want you to see from this first verse that we're looking at, how this groaning uh, leads to waiting. In verse 23 again, first it says, having the first fruits of the Spirit, 
even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So as Christians, those who have the spirit, as we groan, we're groaning as we are waiting. So we know this because we're here, right? Wouldn't it be nice if when you became a Christian, poof, you just got taken into heaven? Very nice. But that doesn't happen. And so what happens is that as you become a Christian, as you become a Christian and you receive the Holy Spirit upon salvation, then what happens in your life is that you're you're set in this posture of groaning and waiting for the final redemption of your bodies. I love I love this passage. I love the way that Paul talks about groaning here. And we're going to talk about it more in a minute. But notice here that it says that we are waiting and that we are waiting eagerly. You see that in verse 23? We, we eager, we're waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. So we anticipate. We eagerly wait, anticipate. So, so, so not, not just passively, but we are aware And and not only that, but we're waiting for something special. We're waiting for our adoption. And in this passage, what that adoption means is that the final resurrection of our bodies. And you may say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. As I'm reading this, I'm reminded of just a couple of verses earlier in the passage in verse 15 and 16. Notice how this is read. For you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are his children. And so you may say, which is it, Lewis? Are we his children now or will we be his children later? And the answer to that is yes. As Gary talked about last week, this whole principle of already and not yet is so vitally important that we are already positionally children of God, but we are not yet like we will be when we will be with him forever. Now, as we continue going in verses 24 and 25, in many ways, it's just reiterating what we saw in verse 23, uh, but it's, it's using a different word here. It brings in this idea of hope, and I want, I want you to see a couple of things uh, of, of what these passages say about hope in 24 and 25. And the first thing I want you to see as we read is, for in hope we have been saved. What would you expect? I mean, we just, we just celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. What would you maybe have expected the text to say in what you have been saved? Faith, right? And, and so why is Paul using the word hope here? And I think part of the reason that we're tempted to ask that question is that we don't understand hope biblically. And one of the things Gary and I do is we talk, when we preach about hope, we always want to remind you when the Bible talks about hope, it's not talking about hope like, I hope I have a good lunch after church. Or I hope Jacksonville Jaguars beat the Patriots. Say that out loud. What we're saying is, when we're talking about hope biblically, it's talking about hoping in God. It's, it's talking about trusting. 
And so in many ways, we can look at it as we look at faith. And so saving faith is hoping or trusting that God is who he says he is, that he has done what he has said he has done, and that he will do what he says he will do. And so hope, so this whole idea about in hope we have been saved, same thing. Also notice in this passage, and we're not going to raise our hands and go through this, but we could. Notice again, we get the idea of, in the Bible, when it's talking about being saved, it uses all the various tenses to talk about salvation towards Christians. You will be saved. You have been saved. You are saved. And so again, Paul is reiterating here that if you, if you hope in God, it's, it's evidence here that you have been saved. But, but hope that is seen is not hope at all. For the one who hopes for what for who hopes for what he's already seen, but if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. And by definition, right? Hope by definition is not seen. And as Christians, we are people who hope, hope, not like our favorite team, but we place our hope and trust in what is not seen. Because we trust two things. We trust the word of God and we trust the spirit that's been given to us that reminds us of the word of God and convicts us of the truth of God and convinces us that the word of God is what it says it is. Lastly, lastly, in talking about hope, we see here again in these verses that people who hope But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. So again, I love the way that Paul is describing the waiting here, that we're waiting with perseverance or endurance, and we're we're doing that eagerly. So that we're enduring, we're patiently, eagerly waiting. (laughs) I love this language. Another translation put it this way. We eagerly wait with patience. So we long for it. We groan in hope with assurance. And when in doubt, we are reassured because we have the first fruits of the Spirit. And we know that God, who began a good work, He who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. So we just worked through the passage. And you may be saying, what in the world does this have to do with the sanctity of human life? And and I want to say this morning, I think from this passage, we can glean two major things. I, I want you to glean two major things about the sanctity of human life from this passage. First of all, first and foremost, by definition, the existence of abortion is an example of the decay that we experience in this world. The very fact that abortion exists should cause us to groan because it's the very example that this world is not what it should be. I mean, you know, we think about, when we talk about that this world is messed up and it's not what it should be, 
we tend to look at things as horrific and awful as like Nazi Germany. But sometimes with these abortion statistics, it goes in one ear and out the other when we hear that 58 million people have been killed since Roe versus Wade. Thankfully, the statistics are on the, on, on the decline, but this, it, it's estimated, I think it was 2016, where the statistics we had that close to a million people were killed. What an example. Is there any greater example of the decay in that things aren't like they should be? So, by definition, by definition, um, this is an example of that. If there were no fall, there would be no abortion. If there were no fall, there would be no abortion. Think about it. What's one of the first accounts we get in Genesis after the fall? Cain and Abel. I think it was last year, maybe on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, that Gary used that passage to, uh, uh, to show us about, uh, to, to bring us to this point. Murder from the very beginning as a result of the fall. The taking of a human life is the result of corruption and decay in this world. And even think about it this way. Even, and, and I want us to think this way. I want us to be thinking people because the, the answer is not as simplistic, I think, as sometimes we try to make it. The circumstances surrounding an abortion are also the result of the fall. And I want to tell you what I mean by that. There are some women who receive an abortion because they've been violated or raped. That type of violation is a result of the fall. Most women, 86% of women who in Tennessee who had an abortion were unmarried. Conceiving a child out of wedlock is a result of the fall. Some mothers reported that the baby is just unwanted. That sort of thinking is a result of the fall. And I'm sure in many cases, we know this, you know, Choice is a wonderful organization here in Chattanooga has taken on a, uh, is, is, is shifting how they do things to try to encompass the fathers, because what they've seen is that many times the biological fathers in these situations are one of the main motivating factors for the woman getting an abortion. And that kind of mindset of a man pressuring a woman to kill or murder her baby is a result of the fall. So the circumstances surrounding an abortion are a result of the fall. And, and lastly, I, I want to say also is that the very fact that to so many people murdering a baby could be logical is a result of the fall. Because it's nonsensical. It's against everything that we think. So, when I see or hear about abortion, I think it causes me to groan. 
and to long for the day when we live in a world, when we live on an earth where this doesn't exist anymore. And so, one, the way these two things connect is that the result of the fall, the corruption, the decay with which our world is under makes this whole idea of abortion even possible. The second thing, and this is the one where you have to hang with me. I I think it's very logical, uh, but I want you to hang with me and understand this. Is that I, I don't think... When we, in this passage, and as we're talking about groaning and waiting, it doesn't mean, when, we're, when Paul's talking about this, he doesn't mean that we sit in the corner of a room or we close the doors outside, we go in, we put the shades down, and we groan and we wait. That's not what Paul is talking about. If that's what Paul meant by this passage, he would not have written, he would not have written chapters 12 through 16. As Paul wrote chapters 12 through 16 of the book of Romans, he is describing to Christians, Christians that he knows are going to suffer, he's calling them to action in the world. Think about Paul and the testimony himself as he talks about the, the, the groaning and his longing for, for the day. Did Paul sit in a corner and do nothing? No, Paul, because of his groaning, because of his longing, stepped up and went forward. And here's the words I want you to understand this morning. Because of the groaning, because he knew what was to come, and because his longing for the day when all things will be restored, it gave Paul a confidence that allowed him to step into suffering. Not to step away from it. And as Christians, as Christians, we were not brought to the Lord so that we could sit back in a room somewhere and shut out the outside world. We were made Christians by God in order to be people who glorify Him, which as we talked about several months ago, means displaying who God is to the world. And in that sermon, if you remember, we talked about that we are to be people, we glorify Him most when we love what He loves and we hate what He hates. So as Christians, it is our mandate to step into human suffering and to be God to the world. We have a message of hope. And we were given this message of hope to bring into these type of situations. So just like Matt Chandler said in the video, we are not a people of hope who sit on some high pedestal and say, you've had an abortion, this means this or that about you. Or you've pressured a woman into abortion, this means this or that about you. What it means is that we sit with someone able to identify with them as sinners because we know the depths of our own sin and the only way that sin the only way that sin is taken care of was through the blood of Jesus Christ dying on the cross and that message of salvation is a message of salvation to all who would believe that message has to get out and so as we talk 
about this passage and longing and hoping. We are a people who have been given this message to step into suffering on behalf of those who need to hear it. And there's a whole industry that needs it. And, and, and I want to talk about um, in two ways, in two ways, two or three ways that we need to champion this cause. And, and one is that, as you heard in the video as well, in the Old and New Testament, everywhere in the Bible, it talks about that Christians are to, to champion champion the cause of the most vulnerable, and there's no, more, no one more vulnerable than a baby inside a mother's womb. Especially in this day and age, where that child uh, legally is getting less and less rights. And so we need to champion that and champion that cause. But also, also, the women, by majority, the women who are electing to have abortions are very vulnerable in our society. As I said earlier, in, in Tennessee, 86% of women who have abortion are not married. 76% of these women are extremely impoverished. Lack of resources, lack of ability, uh, lack of any sense of hope that if they carried this child to term, you know, what the, the life of this child may be. And so we need to be a place who, of people who step into this because we are a people of hope and we've got to step into this context and step into these women's lives and these men's lives who impregnate these women's and give hope. We need to be a people and we are a people and I've, I've seen it. That's what I say about continuing to uh, cultivate a culture of life within this church. One of the things that has just warmed my heart and this was going on long before I came here. That you all are a people, we are a people who understand that the gospel message may mean that we do things that are difficult, like taking children into our home, befriending people who uh, have a, a lack of resources. By supporting those, this is the thing that's worn my heart over the past year or two, is the support I've seen um, from some of you uh, from others who may have taken children into their homes. Certainly that was our case. I mean, we just felt an overwhelming sense, and still do, um, of love and support from you all as we have taken a child into our home. Think about this. Uh, our good friends, we're, this uh, today is our um, uh, adoption foster conference is, is going on today. In fact, I will be leaving out of here and going to Lookout Valley Baptist Church. Casey left out early for that, and some good friends of ours who, uh, uh, who, were, who helped us spearhead this, um, they've had three different foster placements in their home. The, the most recent, these girls came into the home, I think they were probably seven and five when they came into the home, never been to church, never heard of Jesus. Been in their home now for, I think, three years. Um, the oldest one has made a profession of faith. They know the Bible. They know the plan of salvation. They know the gospel. They're probably not going to stay in their home but think about what they leave with. They leave with hope. Do you know who some of the most vulnerable women, so, so make this connection, a lawyer in town told me this not too long ago, what they see in their law office is, uh, and, and they're, uh, they're a nonprofit group who work with homeless women, and uh, what they see is that uh, a majority of the homeless women who come into their office were in the foster care system at some point. Or 
or grew up in state's custody. And then it's these women, a lot of times, if they have access to abortion clinics, these are the ones that are electing to have abortions. What would it mean, and I know that I have sounded this sound and I want to continue to do it, what would it mean if we as the church overwhelmed the foster care system, took these kids into our home and taught them skills, taught them about the gospel, gave them a sense of hope so that they could launch from our homes, number one, knowing they're loved by God, number two, knowing that they're loved by a family, and number three, have maybe created some skills so that they can make a difference, be different than their family of origin. The other thing uh, that we must do, sorry, I got a little bit off my notes here. That as we champion this cause, you know, and we, we do this as a church, and I'm just bringing it to your attention, um, but as, as the church, and we do this, and we need to continue to do this, is that we support organizations that are in line with what I'm talking about this morning. And it warmed my heart. I, I didn't notice it until this morning. I, in fact, this morning... The, the table in front of Amy's office, the front window, um, what I was really thinking is, oh, you know, after really today I can get the, the brochures for the Give Love Conference and take them because they're going to be old now. And then I looked at the table and we see Choices and Lifeline and all these wonderful organizations which we support as a church and many of you support. And I would just encourage you to continue to do that. These folks are on the front line and doing really, really good work in this area. And so I would... Um, say that we, uh, we make sure that you uh, continue to do that. Now, by no way, I hope you haven't heard this morning um, that to, um, as a people who, who groan, as a people who long, as a people who have hope, that that means necessarily that you've got to bring kids into your home. I never want to be the one saying that. What I do want to say is that I love this community at Single Mountain Bible Church. And one of the things about loving this community is that this is a wonderful community to bring um, young women who may be struggling into, to be loved on, to be supported, to bring young children into. It's a wonderful community. And so really what I'm doing is asking you to just continue to be the church. Some of you may get that conviction to bring children or adults or teenagers into your home because you're so convicted about this. And I want to say, if you make that decision, you're doing it in a really good place. Because others of you here need to support with food and money and respite and all sorts of things. So, as we close, as we close, I want to end with just... just Again, um, making this call that as a church, we must mobilize. And we must always be a place, always be a place that goes beyond just the level of ideas. We can't just have good ideas. It has to lead forward into action. Into action. So we must mobilize that. We must recognize that we are the church. We are the face of hope. And my prayer is that as we leave our Sunday morning gatherings, that we are emboldened and we are encouraged to go out and to step into 
suffering because that's what we are asked to do. And lastly, lastly, I just want to remind us that the message of hope that you've been given by receiving the Holy Spirit does not terminate on you. It was never meant to terminate on you. So we as a church are to be a people of action. Let's pray.